Hi, everybody. This is the Eyes Free Fitness Podcast number 18. We've got a lot of good information for you today, and the first thing I want to do before we jump into the interview is I want to play the ad for you that uh, the Blind Bargains uh, team produced for me, and Lisa wrote the script, and I know I'm not supposed to you know, talk about ads or that kind of thing, but I don't care. I'm proud of this, so I'm going to play the ad for you because, after all, Blind Alive is sponsoring this podcast. So, here's the ad. Do you have dreams of getting fit and healthy only to have them shattered? Blind Alive is here to help. We offer competitively priced, eyes-free workouts with complete descriptions designed for you, whatever your level of health or fitness. You can download or purchase CDs, and if you have any trouble, support is just a click or call away. Check us out today at www.blindalive.com. And if you like what you find, be sure to tell your friends. Don't just live, be alive. There it is. I'd love to know what you think of it. Do you understand the the story of it? It's kind of surreal for me to be hearing an ad that was produced for uh, me and my company. But uh, anyway, I'm not going to go off talking about ads. It it is kind of fun, though. I admit it. I I truly think this is this is great fun. I'm having a blast. So. Okay, let's start talking about the guest. Our interview today is Stephen Nichols. He is from London, and he is the creator or founder of One Touch Project, which is a course that he teaches. He teaches instructors to teach self-defense to blind people. And not only blind people, to um, people with all kinds of disabilities and to sighted people as well. It's, It's a technique, a method that can work for anyone. And I'm excited to today to talk to Stephen. We had a wonderful conversation, and I'm sure you're gonna enjoy it. So here's Stephen Nichols. Hi, Stephen. How are you today? Very well, Mel. Thank you very much for the interview. I'm excited. I this when I found out, um, it was through LinkedIn. Actually, I, I connected with Miranda Brown and uh, One Touch Project, and I got in touch with her. I think I was just thinking this is so fascinating, and so I'm I'm excited to to talk about it um, today. So let's. Tell me a little bit um, about the history and what it is you're doing, and then we can dig into the fun stuff. Okay, thank you. Um, yes, first of all, to address that point, uh, the first first port of call is almost always uh, uh, Administrative Executive Miranda Brown. She is she is an amazing, amazing person, extraordinarily effective, and cares about her work so much. I, I cannot help but think that you had an immediate reply. My <laughs> No, she's she's extraordinary. My my background is 
primarily one of being a utilitarian writer of programs for self-defense. Um, what does that mean to most people? That's just a strange field. You say self-defense and I think of Jackie Chan or Chuck Norris or something like that. Uh, <laughs> I've worked with uh, police and bodyguards and special interest groups, women self-defense, children, and that was really my background. Uh, someone would come with a problem for, say, physical intervention or greater safety in general or safety awareness, and I would observe their particular circumstances. Were they going out at night? Were they, you know, were they talking about their children, for example? You know, what, what are we really discussing? Uh, and then come up with programs for that as a consultant, if you like. And my background with regards to the One Touch is this is exactly what happened with the RNIB, Royal National Institute of the Blind. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my uh, students was a support worker at the RNIB, a man by the name of Alan Gutzel. And uh, Alan asked if I would teach a weekend course of self-defense for blind people on the basis of him noticing that many people do in fact feel insecure to travel. They do feel maybe not as secure as they could. So I did a weekend class and that's literally what catapulted, changed, changed my life work. I have uh, dedicated myself to this now. Um, the interest was so high, the reception was just amazing. And and that's how that's how I got hooked. <laughs> I, I think it's it's um it, it's one of those before and after moments where you don't have the idea that you're going to be doing this as a a life's work, and then all of a sudden you find yourself doing it. Completely, uh, completely. It it uh, I I was as I said I was hooked from the get go. Uh, here were a group of people who had made extreme efforts to travel across London or even across greater London. We're talking about, you know, 15 million people. It's not a small city. And as I say, the reception was was very encouraging, extremely encouraging. My learning curve, I, I may have said this before, but my learning curve it wasn't a curve. It was a spike. I mean, <laughs> uh, uh, working with uh, this demographic and and adapting adapting the perception of threat, adapting the perception, you know, to to getting across the street, to um, traveling from A to B, and the circumstances which which now, of course, I'm much more familiar with, at the time was completely novel to me. I, I think it's fair to say I was unprepared, Mel. <laughs> <laughs> so, Stephen, I'm curious to know what does one of these weekends look like? It it happens over a weekend, right? This workshop. Well, that's what we started with, Mel, and that was six years ago. So we're going to have to change gears a little bit. Um, I don't want to dodge the question, but it's not its not the same thing that happened, uh, that very first occurrence. What happened after that weekend is I started investigating the history of uh, people with disabilities doing self-defense, protecting themselves, um, the legalities of self-defense with people who are perceived legally, certainly, as vulnerable members of society. I, I want to make that clear. I'm not calling anyone a vulnerable member of society. But <laughs> under uh, the legatic, legal scheme, schematic, that is certainly the case. And what came up with my research is that there are many people out there teaching karate or judo or aikido or what have you uh, to those willing participants who are blind. But nobody actually studied the nature of assault against people who are perceived as vulnerable uh, in this particular case. Nobody, 
has interviewed had interviewed or if they have i have not found any evidence of it whatsoever um people who'd actually felt threatened uh, on a daily basis on, on just on a life on a life level so i started researching that and what became very clear just to make a long story short is that a program to address those needs wasn't in existence and while there were certainly as i've just mentioned many people who were doing excellent work Excuse me. <clears throat> Nobody had actually gone to the the lengths of creating a program for distribution. And without having created a program for distribution, let's be honest, how many people can one actually reach? All right. So, All right. For, so for example, Mel, if I were to set up Chuck's Martial Arts Emporium for the Blind in Colorado... <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't get very many people. <laughs> no, exactly. And then there's the other question of to really deliver uh, a quality of training and, and to to provide the platform for examining these extremely important issues, how many people can one person teach and work with at one time? So this, this made it very clear that there needed to be a program which could be communicated and taught in uh, local demographics, within local communities, and so forth. So now to answer your question, skip ahead. Uh, we put together a program for distribution, and you're absolutely correct. It's a coaching certification program, which takes about two and a half days. Um, over those two and a half days, a person learns the fundamentals of threat awareness, safety, the legalities of self-defense. Uh, one learns very basic techniques and tools and skill sets. I suppose that's the most important point, skill sets, mm -hmm. um, to address these issues. Uh, it's a two-and-a-half-day intensive hands-on training. And once again, I'm referring to somebody wanting to become a one-touch instructor. Okay, I see. So, there we go. So that's the difference. Okay. So so they come to you. Mean, you. You come to them and learn how to be an, an instructor. And an, an instructor um, can be blind or sighted. Absolutely. I would say this is off my off of my cuff at the moment, Miranda would have exactly the correct statistics, of course. But I would say about 50% of the one-touch coaches are themselves blind. Absolutely. And um, and then, of course, these people are serving their local community. Without having, I mean, it's a real chicken and egg if you look at it, but without creating instructors, how could you reach the people? And that's that's the conclusion we came to, and it's been working very well. That's fantastic. So, um so what are you teaching them to teach, exactly? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, we're working on threat awareness, threat response, appropriate response in the eyes of the law. Um, we're working on physical techniques and an actual approach. I think we may have spoken about this a little bit earlier. An approach to uh, perceiving oneself is really so important. Confidence is so important. A basic understanding of how our bodies work and what we can and cannot do and what what our actual relationship is, not just to ourselves, but to those people around us who may want to take advantage of us for, for whatever reason. Right. So these are the issues we go into extreme depth with. It's, I would say that the physicality of it, while it, it's the most evident and most obvious, really only is about 20% of the program. It's the barometer. It's the way we practice. It's the way that we can actually see what we can do, You know that we, we understand how we can move, we understand what our options are under given circumstances, optimum outcomes. I mean, as we know, <laughs> an, an intrusion could be from a very benign 
Boy Scout trying to drag someone across the street. I mean, all right, it's not aggressive, but it wasn't asked for either. <laughs> right. So let's talk about that. You know, I, I'm I'm curious about examples of how and when would I, as a blind person, you know, give me some examples of how I can use this. That's that's a, that's a perfect question, actually, Mel. Thank you for asking it. Um, great lead in there. It's absolutely exactly what we have to study. And the best way to do that is for me to give you case scenarios. And scenario or role playing is a big part of our training because we are looking at a huge shade of gray, a huge shade of gray called self-defense. Well, what is that really? Right. Uh, what is reasonable force? And what is reasonable source, uh, uh, force rather, under moments of stress um, as opposed to, as I mentioned earlier, you know, a benign intrusion? Um, I've had so many friends who are literally manhandled into sitting down as if as if a blind person hasn't sat down by themselves for years. I mean, all kinds of situations <laughs> like that. It's, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. So an example, and I think this might be a very common one and certainly uh, an accessible starting point, is someone's at a corner, a, blind, a person who's blind is at a corner and they're waiting to cross and somebody will come up helpfully and instead of asking if somebody if, if that person needs assistance, simply grabs their arm and starts walking them across the street. Now, that's not aggressive necessarily. It's not the best manners in the world, clearly. But it's not necessarily aggressive. So we take that very mild starting point and then build and build and build to a genuine, a genuine aggravated assault. Hmm. So let's put those in terms that somebody is really trying to do damage or... Let's leave it at that, shall we? Let's okay. Just okay. Right. So what we do with the one touch is we examine these situations. And, of course, it raises many questions. Well, what if this? What about that? What if there's more than one? What if I'm alone? What if I've dropped my cane? What if uh, my do guide dog is going hysterical because I'm being <laughs> assaulted? Well, these are very common questions, as you might imagine. Yeah. Providing a forum for that discussion with people who've been in circumstances, who've um, use this program themselves uh, successfully, I might add. These are the sort of the questions and issues which come up repeatedly. I mean, again and again, Mel, again and again about what if this, how could I be safe? What if, what if I don't want to hurt someone? I mean, who does, right? Right. What if I need to? What if, what if it's literally a matter of my having to defend myself, find my cane, and leave an unfamiliar area safely without being followed? That's a pretty tall order. It's a very tall order. I'm curious to hear that. I'm curious to know how, you know, what are some of the techniques that you would use in that situation? Uh, the vast majority of, of assaults against people who are perceived as blind, and I say that because I don't think the greater population realizes that. I, I, again, my statistics are a bit off, but I think it's from 4 to 6% or total. Does that sound about right to you? I think that's the case, that most people on the street, an ordinary thug civilian, if you will, see somebody with a cane, they think that they can't see anything. Right. Or with a dog, can't see anything at all. That's, that's, that's their view. Yeah, and that's not the norm. That is not the norm. That is not the norm at all. That's a very, very small percentage of people. Um, but this actually affects the way the perpetrator behaves. And what that means and this is actually quite important as far as the program is concerned, is we've done a forensic study, <coughs> excuse me, a bit chesty, we've done a, a forensic study 
<coughs> for those people who have engaged in this research as to the circumstances of them being assaulted. And by and large, of course there are no guarantees, by and large it tends to be very up close and personal now. It tends to be from a very close proximity, from a grab or for a push, or from mm -hmm. someone in, in your face, so to speak. And with just a little bit of thinking about this, it makes a lot of sense. Because if the perpetrator's perception is that they cannot be seen, well, what's the point of posturing? <laughs> what is the point of standing five feet away and just trying to look big and doing all that stupid gesticulation, which we do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Animal Kingdom, mostly male, I might add. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, all joking aside, the the actual the actual nature of assaults tend to be very, very close. Well, this in and of itself gives us a parameter to work towards, because if we're being grabbed or we're being pushed while they're touching us, we can touch them right back. Right. Hence, one touch. Someone puts their hand on you. You put your hand right over their hand, and from there. From there, we go into a whole uh, sliding scale of analysis of severity. In other words, is somebody just pushing us back, saying, hey, you're standing in my spot? Are they, uh, again, intrusive but without real danger? Or is it really a dangerous situation? You know, uh, do, we, do we have to retaliate in a fashion which is going to leave this person on the ground? And we have to approach this through... Uh, all different systems of, of the entire wealth of knowledge out there through all the martial arts, what is most appropriate, what is the most accessible, what's the most likely to happen. Of course, I'm not suggesting at any point that uh, a person who's blind couldn't go to any martial arts school or judo school or jujitsu or what have you, and I encourage everyone to do so. But the nature of the assault, the perception that someone cannot see them, really frequently, very frequently, more often than not, determines the proximity and the way that that threat is delivered. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, it actually is. And as I've mentioned before, our friends at the NFB have, have uh, very reasonably said, well, why are you suggesting, Mr. Nichols, that blind people, people who are blind rather, would need a different system anyway? And that's a very valid question in my opinion. Very. Um, it's the same thing as saying that uh, children's self-defense is going to be different than young adults. Uh, for example, the transition work which we do with students going to university, well, if you think about it, that's 90% women's self-defense, honestly. Right. 99. Then if you look at what bodyguards have to do to defend themselves, it's very different than what doormen need to do. Sorry, bouncers, what have you. Which is, again, very different from policemen, which is, again, very different from soldiers which is, again, very different from uh, those officers who work in prisons. So the nature of the threat, the nature of the way we are viewed, really determines the kind of techniques we should be using. I think I, that makes perfect sense to me. You know, that there's, we need it adapted. And, you know, you adapt to children, you adapt to seniors, you adapt. You know, it, it, it's not like adapt is a bad word. It's, not at all. It's a good word. And it's not dumbing down or anything like or that. anything, or, yeah. It's giving, it's giving us more power than we might have in, in another situation, you know? Well, exactly. And let's take, for example, the veterans. 
those men and women who've served their country have come back, they may not want to put on a judo gi. I mean, these people were actual fighters. They were in the arena. They may want to actually continue giving to their community to actually become instructors and to take all of their skill sets and not put on a uniform and do sport, but really protect people, again, still. So we're really looking at uh, an application to everyday life, confidence, mobility. Um, as you mentioned, the elderly, that's a very, very, very important point because what are the li what's the likelihood of someone 65 plus who's, who hasn't maybe had a lot of uh, physical education before, perhaps they've been very marginalized, as is so often the case, what's the likelihood of that person going to a Taekwondo school? Not very. Not very. Not going into I mean, I encourage everyone to do so, but it's just, you know, it seems daunting. It seems uh, unaccessible. And un unfortunately, still, I know it's completely illegal, but still people are turned away for being, you know, for, I, I almost don't even want to say it. But <laughs> people, don't, people, people do not act the way they should sometimes. And no. it's so discouraging. Yeah, they don't. Well, and a lot of times, uh, I tend to be a rather compassionate sort. And a lot of times, it's just because they don't know any better. Nobody has taught them, and it's our job to teach people a new vocabulary and a new way of thinking. And so that's. I think that's a lot of what you're doing is giving people more choices. You couldn't have said it. I mean, thank you. You're hired. <laughs> that's, that's exactly the case. Freedom of movement, uh, sense of dignity, freedom of fear, um, and all that comes with it, meaning getting out of the house, you know, socializing more, meeting other people, the hands-on training, the nature of the training. It's very tactile. Uh, the communication skills that come with this. I mean, I'm not saying that someone would necessarily take a course to develop their communication skills, obviously. But the byproduct of working with people, of training, the confidence that comes with it absolutely adds to the wellness of life, the sense of well-being and, and, and uh, the dignity which comes with that without, without being frightened. And I think that having the choices is the key point to that. I mean, it really is. I... I'm not afraid to leave my house. Right, I, and that is just something. That's one of the things. In fact, you know, I just I just wrote a blog about it. It's not. It hasn't come out yet. But fear. You know, when I go outside, I put on my armor. I put on. You know, I got my dog, my guide dog. I have my. Um, you know, whatever whatever it is. I mean, I pull down that armor of calmness and and confidence and. You know, when I walk out the door, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, I don't know if a branch is going to hit me. I don't know if I'm going to fall off the curb. I don't know if a car is going to come around the corner that I didn't quite detect for whatever reason. And so, you know, having a way to manage fear in terms of safety, you know, this, this branch of safety. You know. Yes, it's, it's, it's a life skill. And by the way... This has nothing to do with someone being blind or visually impaired. That's exactly the same for me or for anybody else. Everything that you just mentioned is across the board. Yes. You know, we all get scared. We all get, you know, we all get frightened about things. So um, the tools to deal with that, that the knowing being taught how to process that, how to how to analyze a situation without being, you know, 
super theoretical about it because this has, you know, it all happens rather quickly when it happens. And having the means to train and actually seeing improvement is extremely important. It's not enough to just say, you know, trust your instincts and good luck. It's not enough to say that. No. You know, we need a way to, to practice and to develop ourselves more than anything else. And what I'd like to compare it to, Mel, is swimming. A lot of people enjoy swimming. A lot of people going down, like going down to the pool, the beach, splashing about, going to the pond or the creek and having a you know, barbecue with friends in the process, whatever it may be, but swimming about and just enjoying the water. Now, that's all well and good, but would you ever want to have to know how to swim? <laughs> yeah, I see what you're saying. Exactly, that's exactly what self-defense is. Yeah. It's so much fun. It gives you uh, a great perspective on health and well-being, and it's very good for you when you interact with people, etc. But you'd never want to have to use it. But when you need it, it's too late to learn. So, what it is that you're that you're teaching, you're teaching your teachers to teach is, I'm assuming since you're able to teach it in two days, it's it's a pretty simple method. Well, yeah, we're not talking about an incredibly complicated martial history, which is you know as as we said earlier, been dumbed down, quote unquote. That's really not what we're doing. What we've done is we've examined. Um, the most common assaults, the most likely case scenarios. Uh, we've opened up the, the, the platform, uh, actually internationally, if you want to know the truth, about, about uh, the sense of personal perception being in conflict with preconception or social perception. That's really what self-defense is about. Somebody saying, I think I can do this to you, and us saying, well, you, you can't. Don't <laughs> <laughs> think that for the wrong reasons. You're thinking that based on a paradigm, which I'm going to challenge right now. So what we do is we work towards that with uh, physical tools, techniques. Um, I don't want to bore you, but it's punching, striking, and there's a whole question mark that comes up there, naturally. Uh, joint locking, forcing someone to the ground, restraint, immobilization, examination, as I've mentioned, to the legalities of self-defense. And to clarify, one does not become an instructor in two and a half days. That would be unwise. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was I was thinking, how can you do that? <laughs> yeah, that, would be, that would be like home surgery or teach yourself to swim with a book. You know, just, not, not, a, not a good idea. Considering the nature of what we're discussing, considering the volatile aspect, considering that whenever whenever we run a coaching certification course, everybody already has a view of self-defense. Everybody's already experienced it on some level. So everybody brings something to the table which is extremely important. But what happens is two and a half days, we go through the physical curriculum, the, uh, the theory and approach, the legalities. We go through teacher training modules, whereby somebody has an opportunity to do a mock class. Uh, and of course, not everybody who attends these have actually the sensitivity training. Not everybody who attends these courses is uh, an O&M instructor or works in the Veterans Administration or are themselves blind. Sometimes, you know, Decided people come to this without any background whatsoever, so, or or background of culture, if you see what I'm saying. Right. So consequently, you know, for those people, there's an insisted upon sensitivity training, which does not take place place in those two and a half days as a matter of time. So we have really three aspects: we have the core curriculum, we have the sensitivity training for those people who require it, and then of course we have this module about being able to deliver. So it's very, very well and good to understand the material, but one has to communicate it. So there's a vocabulary, as you mentioned, that comes with this kind of training. 
which is insisted upon. And then, given the training tools, given uh, um, all of the workbooks and, and, and support material, of course, in many different formats, then the person goes and has a six-month probationary period to practice. So it's actually a six-month part which counts there as opposed to two and a half days. Great. Yeah. Oh, it, I, I, I want to do it. <laughs> well, you're more than welcome to. I mean, this, one, uh, this one fellow said to me, an O&M instructor, he said, I've got the best job in the world, and then looked at me and said, except for maybe yours. And I went, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> so if I wanted to just go take a class, not not the teaching, coaching class. I just want to go take a class. I want somebody to teach me what it is. So is is that a weekend class? Uh, that is entirely depending upon the coach, the one-touch coach in your neighborhood. So they get to, they get to design their own um, program, we, essentially. Well, we have a recommended course structure. This is, of course, completely open to, it needs to be adapted. I mean, it has to, uh, for the reasons we mentioned. Let's say um, someone's just working with children. All right, well, the terminology is going to change clearly when we're talking about self-defense, those techniques that you teach. But the bottom line is the one-touch coaches work within their local neighborhoods and constituency. And what we're doing with the website at the moment... Oh, I lost you. Still good? Yeah. We're we're making it so that somebody, let's say they're in... um, Secaucus, New Jersey, wanted to find an instructor. They'd come to the uh, info at onetouchproject.com. All right. And they'd find an instructor nearest to them. And then that's really the end user. Not everyone wants to become a coach, of course. You know, some people just want the skills without going through a two and a half day certification process plus a six month uh, probationary period to hone their skills. They want to attend a class just like anybody else. Right. And that that's who, that's what I want to get, you know. I'm, I think people would love to be teachers and coaches. I'm also thinking that people would like to know how can they get this knowledge. Exactly. And, and as it's for distribution, we are, in fact, always aiming towards the end user. That's, that's, that's what society is built on. <laughs> that's who we want to be safe. That's who we want to be open to this platform to get this information. And the best way you or anyone else could do that would actually to be contacting uh, the One Touch itself and find the instructor nearest to you. I mean, we have instructors working out of uh, their garages, different church halls. We have instructors working with, um, <clears throat> excuse me, state-run organizations. We have individual instructors who only do one-on-one teaching because, as O and M instructors, that's what they're comfortable and want to do. So the best thing to do, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm so sorry. It's okay. The best thing to do would be uh, for somebody to actually get onto the website, contact us, find the instructor nearest you. That would be the easiest. Oh, that's fantastic. That's that's a great thing, and I can imagine instructors being in YMCA's and. Um, you know, sure, and that that kind of thing. Yeah, I think it's. You don't you don't really need any uh, equipment. There are no uniforms involved, <clears throat> so we're not talking about you know strapping on your wrist straps and going to work out in a heavy bag for forty five minutes. You know, we're talking about going into a class or working with somebody who can address those issues, who is trained to address those issues of security and safety. Right. So some of the techniques. It, it sounds to me 
you're learning how to use your energy and the energy of the, quote, attacker, for lack of a better term, against them. Absolutely. The techniques themselves are extremely effective. I mean extremely. There's no placebo here. It's it's all very well and good to discuss self-defense, and that's that's very important, um, extremely important. But without giving someone the physical tools where they can express that, right? Then it's not necessarily you know that's not enough. Well, it's not enough in my opinion. Right. Why this program exists. The tools themselves <clears throat> involve locking joints, um, forcing somebody to the ground. It does not take a lot of strength. Uh, the techniques used are exactly the same one used, used rather by um, the police, by uh, other groups who actually need survival school, uh, survival skills within their work. So it's rather difficult to go into a great deal of detail. Yeah, you can. Yeah, well, yeah. It, it's it's fascinating to me, um, just you know because of body awareness and. Uh, there, there's, I have so many questions. I would love to find out, um, to go more in depth to, into the whole thing. So probably what I need to do is take a class or find an instructor or something. That. I would love that. More than welcome. More than welcome. First-hand experience. As we started out with, one starts talking about self-defense. And the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, do this, do that, strike that. They grab you, do this. That, that kind of an approach. What we've done at One Touch is we've taken, yes, granted there are, of course, extremely important physical techniques that work very well, and we have a, a much greater understanding of our body and the way we move and how we relate to people, but it goes beyond that. It goes with a sense of well-being about ourselves. I mean, this is so important. I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here. I know that you know this, of course, with your background, but really having the confidence and having the a good relationship to our own bodies, a good understanding of what we can do, the confidence to get around and, and, and to deliver when necessary. I mean, if somebody is viewed, I'm not saying everyone is, of course, but let's say I'm viewed as uh, a very short person who could be slapped around senseless. If I believe that myself, mm-hmm. well, they're already 90% of the way there. Right. right. And that's what has to be addressed. It's really... It's really about perception more than anything else. It, yeah, it, it, it's about perception of self, and it's about frame of reference. You know, yes. I, per, I perceive myself as a confident, safe person because, partly because I have the tools and I know I have the tools, and hopefully I won't ever need to use the tools, but I have them. Just like swimming, Mel. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly so. You said it very, very well. Hopefully one would never have to... Uh, deliver, but actually knowing that you could and really knowing it. Yes. Because that's what this practice demonstrates. It's not a placebo. It's not a little sugar-coated pill saying if you do this, you'll be okay. Somebody who practices the one touch and and I'm unfortunately, we have a lot of evidence of this. And I say unfortunate because there are some people who've had to defend themselves and they did so very successfully. I'm extremely proud of their instructors actually. <laughs> Uh, I'm 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 interested. I um I am a big believer in you know fear exists and we're going to have fear. So part of our job is to manage it. Fear isn't something you get rid of. Fear is something you manage. And this sounds like something that would help us manage fear. 
very much so. I heard, I heard a great definition of bravery and I heard a great definition of courage. The definition I heard of bravery was when there's something more important to do than being afraid. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Isn't that great? Yeah. You're not frightened. It means I've got to do something else right now because there's a child's life at stake or you know whatever the case may be. Right. And courage, actually coming from the word cour, uh, the heart, means being true to one's heart, being true to oneself. And what right. I like about that definition is it's a definition of perception. Who is oneself? Does this person have the right to make me frightened? Does this person have the right to intimidate me? What are my options here? What can I do? To be true to myself, what's, what's required? Exactly. And to be able to ex access that in yourself, so much strength comes from that. And express it. And to be able to express it. So that's that's really what the one touch is about. You know, if we, we get away from the whole spinning back kicks, yes, I can uh, throw someone on the floor. Yes, that's all well and good. But when and how and how do you learn it? <laughs> and right. when when, do we, when are we really going to be true to ourselves? What what is what does that mean? How can we how can we go through a process to to make sure we're not frightened? And that's yeah. what being yeah. true to yourself is, really, if you think about it. Love it. I just, I love it, yeah. I have a feeling we could just keep going on and on because it, it's fascinating, <laughs> it's a fascinating subject. We'll go for round two next time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that would be good. I, I'd, I'd actually think it would be fun to have some people that are, have taken the the class, you know, not the instructor class, but the, but the class from an instructor, um, just to see how they, you know, how it's affected the way they feel. Well, exactly, because let's be honest, um, I'm clearly an enthusiast, but <laughs> I would be. It really doesn't matter what I say. Oh, yeah, not that's really. right. <laughs> yeah, well, that no, is, yeah. Think about it. Really, it's, 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 if I say that this is this and this is that, all right, well, maybe, but it's the end user. Who's, who's getting something out of this? Who's really benefiting? That's the person who should who could really testify. And I agree with you 100%. I would love I would love for you. You know, once again, I think we start off now. I was saying that I'm very proud of our extremely proud of our coaches. Extremely. Um, I would love for you to actually experience this one firsthand and to have the opportunity, as you so kindly interviewed me, to interview those people who aren't coaches, don't be coaches, actually practice this uh, touch project to actually be safer, happier people. Yeah, well, yeah. well, let's we'll talk. We'll talk some more. Uh, let's wrap this up, and then um, and then we'll talk a little bit more in a minute. Um, so so tell us, Stephen, where we can reach you, and how can uh, anybody that wants to become a coach find you, and also then how can people who want to take a to find the coaches near them tell us how we can make okay. that happen. Sure, Mel. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. Um, info at OneTouch Project, and that's the digit one, not O-N-E, OneTouchProject.com. Info at OneTouchProject.com. It is a completely accessible website, um, and there's lots of information there, lots and lots of information. Someone to find the coach nearest them, if, they, if someone were interested in just running a course, I mean, being being a part of a course, being part of that. Uh, not to become an instructor, but to actually practice the one touch, that'd be the easiest way to find us. And likewise, if someone was interested in becoming an instructor, it's the same. Info at OneTouchProject.com. 
Uh, once again, Mel, you mentioned Miranda Brown. Uh, Miranda would be contacting them directly, and that would be the easiest way. Beautiful. Great. Thank you so much for talking with us today, Stephen. Oh. And maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll do it again. With Fingers a... crossed. We've got to get you into a class first, don't we? Yeah, that'd be fun. That would be really fun. So, so thanks a lot. Thank you, Mel. Thank you so much. Take care. Today on Fitness Speak, we're going to talk about knees. You always hear or you often hear, don't lock your knees. Keep your knees soft. That is an important instruction, and I'm going to tell you why you always hear that. But first, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the anatomy of the knee. The knee is the largest joint in the body. It takes so much pressure and stress from everyday use, standing, exercising, walking, running. It takes on a great deal and we really do need to be aware of what our knees are doing and to take care of them. There are four major bones that have to do with the structure of the knee. We've got the femur, which is that huge bone in the thigh. We've got the patella, which is the kneecap. We have the tibia, which is the bone that connects with the femur and then the fibula, which is that little bone on the outside of your leg that runs down to the ankle. It's a vulnerable bone, and it tends to be one of the more common ones that get broken or, or cracked. There are several ligaments around the knee that keep it stable. Um, I'm not going to go into all the, the ligaments, but the ones you're probably the most familiar with are the, the ACL, or the anterior cruciate ligament, and the PCL, which is the posterior cruciate ligament. There are also medial ligaments that are on the inside of the knee and on the outside of the knee. The ACL is the one that tends to get injured the most in sports. Quick, twisting, pounding movements can injure that fairly easily. Easily, The, um, the PCL is less vulnerable. Fortunately, um, orthopedic surgery has gotten to the place where they can repair these ligaments pretty well, and usually rehabilitation can occur, and you can be back doing what you were doing before after a pretty long rehabilitation period. It would be better to avoid those injuries if you can, um, but sometimes things do happen. Um, the quadriceps muscles, which are the ones on the top of the thighs, which are very important in strengthening uh, to help with the stability of, of the knee. So anytime you're doing quads work or hamstrings work, which is the, the muscles on the, the back of the leg, these muscles are all super important for the stability of the knee. Problems with the knee can happen when you are carrying too much body weight, that extra body weight 
pounds on the knees and can predispose you to arthritis or instability. So it's really important to, to stay strong and to keep your weight under control to the best of your ability. Also, shoes, high heel shoes. I hate high heel shoes. I said before I was a massage therapist and high heel shoes do so much damage and there's just no excuse for them really. Not that I'm passionate about that. I'm sure you can't hear that I'm passionate about high heel shoes, but I just just don't wear them. Um, you will be so happy that you didn't wear them. Um, they can predispose you to arthritis. Um, other problems that can predispose you to knee issues are just, just wearing um, shoes in general that don't fit properly. Also, you may have one leg that's longer than the other, or you may have some scoliosis in your spine, uh, which means a curvature in your spine, which might require you to get some orthotics for your shoes so that you can make sure that your body alignment is good. So you may need to go to a podiatrist or a chiropractor or um, a physiatrist, physical therapist, just to make sure that your body alignment is good and to make sure that your shoes work well for you. Now I want to tell you why we don't lock our knees, why it's not good to lock your knees. The reason for that is because when you lock your knee, and what I mean when I say lock your knee, that means if you're, you're standing up and that knee hyperextends, which means it kind of goes to the back. And what happens when you lock your knee, which a lot of people do because it, it's, it's easier to lock your knee, because when that knee joint is locked, you, you almost feel more stable sometimes. Um, but what's happening is your, your bones and ligaments are getting stressed, and they are holding the weight when bones aren't supposed to hold your weight. Bones are the levers for your muscles. So muscles are the, the strength. Muscles are what your body is use, using to hold you up. So if your knee is locked, you're not using your muscles. So when your knee is just a little tiny bit bent, your leg will look straight, but it'll just be a tad bit soft, it'll be a little bit bent. That way, your muscles are being used, your quads and your hams and um, all the other muscles around your knee joints and the whole, all the muscles in your body are holding you up. You're not hanging on that joint, because when you hang on that joint, it wears down the, the cartilage or the, the meniscus. You've heard of meniscus or cartilage injuries in your knees, um, which when that happens, it, it, there's bone on bone. So the tibia and the fibula are scraping against each other, and it's really not very comfortable. You can 
help yourself um, by not locking your knees. You shouldn't knock your knock. You shouldn't lock your hip joints either, um, and that's a different story. But the principle is the same. You want your muscles to hold you up, not your bones. So that's why we don't lock our knees. So that's it for knees. There's a whole lot more, but um, I think basically uh, that that's answers the question, you know, why we don't lock our knees and gives you a little bit of, of an idea of the structure of the knee. So take care of your knees. This time in feedback files, we have a question from a customer who asked, in some of your workouts, you talk about standing with feet hip distance apart. And in other ones, you talk about standing with feet shoulder distance or shoulder width apart. What's the difference? And why do I need to do this anyway? Well, there really isn't much difference. Shoulder distance and hip distance, or shoulder width and hip width apart, are the same thing. Basically what we're saying is that your feet shouldn't be so close together that they are touching one another, and they shouldn't be overly wide apart either. They should just be about as wide as your hips or as wide as your shoulders. The reason for standing this way is that it is a well-balanced stance. It's easy to maintain, and when you're standing this way, you can be pretty certain that you are going to be standing with good balance. Also, from this stance, you can stand easily with knees not locked, which is so important, and you can also adjust your posture well while in this particular hip width or shoulder width stance. We appreciate all your questions and your comments. You are welcome to contact us by emailing support at blindalive.com or you can visit our website and contact us using the contact form there. We want to interact with you and we want to have you interact with us, so we've made it easy. On Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, Pretty much everywhere that there is social media, we are Blind Alive. It's all one word. We'd love to have you follow us there. And if you use a social media platform and you wish we were there and we're not, please let us know and we'll be happy to see what we can do. Thanks for listening. And we look forward to bringing you more helpful, informative news on the next podcast.